If you have your Bibles with you this morning, find the Gospel of John and chapter 4, where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. Uh, I hope you have your Bibles because we're not able to get all of this up here, but there's a couple of key verses we'll put here for you if you didn't bring your Bible. But John chapter 4, uh, the, the background of John chapter 4 is that John the Baptist <clears throat> has been baptizing and uh, many of his disciples are going over to uh, Jesus. They're leaving John and going over to Jesus. And um, in fact, it says in verse 1, John chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus, or at least His disciples, were baptizing now uh, more disciples than even John was baptizing. And then it says that He left that area of Judea and went up to Galilee, which is be northern Israel, and in order to do that, He had to go through Samaria. So verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, verse 6 says. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well about the sixth hour. Uh, what time is that? They, they start the the Jewish reckoning at 6 a.m. So it's noon. So it'd be about midday. Um, verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, would ask drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would give, have given you living water. Now drop down uh, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, well, you are right in saying I have no husband. You have had five husbands. Ouch. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, I think probably a little flustered, verse 19, I per Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship where people ought. But Jesus said, the hour is coming, now is, when you will neither worship on the mountain that is in Samaria nor in Jerusalem but you will worship in spirit and truth. Then drop down, if you would, to verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. Verse 25, which is also called Christ, 
the anointed one. And when he comes, he will tell us all things, kind of like you're doing here with me, Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now that's interesting because Jesus never revealed the fact that he was the Messiah to anybody except his closest disciples. In fact, the only one off the top of my head I can think of is Matthew 16 where, where, uh, where Jesus told Peter, on this rock I'll build my church when he confessed he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And here he reveals his Messiahship to this woman. And the disciples then come back in verse 27, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what are you seeking? What are you wanting with this woman? I think they were a little taken aback. Uh, and this, it doesn't say that he was talking with a Samaritan woman. That was surprising enough. But they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Because one of the things that, that um, in first century, when you wanted to kind of, I don't know, check out the, the prospective brides, you, there were no coffee shops and there were no malls or drive-ins. Where did you go? Well, you went to a well. And because there, younger women, because they could carry it, would come and get water for the family. And so that's where a guy would go, and without the ever-prying eyes of the parents, they could check out the brides, prospective brides. And in the Bible, you remember how that um, Isaac was, at least his, dad, his father's uh, servant, Abraham, his father, sent his servant to get a bride for Isaac. Where did he go? He went... Genesis 24, to the well. And when Moses went to the Midianites, he found his bride, Zipporah, Exodus 2.16, at a well. And Jacob, the father of the twelve sons, which became the twelve tribes of Israel, met Rachel at a well, uh, Genesis chapter 29. And Jesus, at Jacob's well, where he met Rachel, meets this woman. And he start, engages her in conversation, and the disciples are like, Whoa, what is he doing? Now, they didn't say that to him. It says he was, they marveled that he was talking with a woman at a well here. They didn't see Jesus as that kind of guy. <clears throat> and so maybe some, if we <clears throat> reach into the background of the Old Testament and uh, get some uh, culture, get some vocabulary would help us. <clears throat> Let, let's start with this. There are two testaments, <laughs> right? It's simple. There are two testaments, amen? Are you with me so far? Old Testament, New Testament. Well, the word testament means a covenant. Testament is actually the Latin, and English is covenant. But it's the same word in the original language. Testament, 
covenant. So there are two testaments, two covenants. That covenant is called a marriage covenant. God had a covenant with Israel. That is a marriage type of covenant where you don't just contract for goods, but you, you covenant yourself. That's, that was the covenant. And so to be unfaithful to that covenant, uh, when Israel would go and worship an idol, that was considered by the prophets as kind of a spiritual adultery or unfaithfulness. So you have Isaiah 121, which says concerning Jerusalem, how that faithful city, said Isaiah, has become a harlot. Now what he means by that is they have set up idols instead of worshiping their divine husband and following him in the covenant that they made at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt and made that covenant. Remember the Ten Commandments? Well, now they have abandoned that and started worshiping Baal and Marduk and all these other gods. And so Isaiah protests against this and says, You're, well, all these idols, this is harlotry and unfaithfulness against God. Hosea the prophet, he, he was called by God to be a, a living illustration of this. Um, give me Hosea 1 verse 2. Here's what Hosea the prophet said. He said, uh, go and take yourself a wife of whoredom. Yeah, this is the English Standard Version, but it doesn't get any better with other versions. So I wouldn't normally use this language, but this is what Hosea said. God told Hosea the prophet, he said, I want you to go marry a whore. And Hosea's like, what? What? <laughs> Because, he says, the land has committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So I want you to become a living illustration of me and my people. So Hosea goes and makes a covenant, a marriage covenant, with an unfaithful bride, an unfaithful woman. And he says, and she conceived and bore him a son and... Chapter 1, verse 4 of Hosea says, The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. And Jezreel means to scatter, to, like you go out with a handful of seed and throw it. Scatter it like seed. For in just a little while I will punish them, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And what he means by that is he's going to scatter them. He would bring in the Assyrian army and they would capture them and deport them and the exile. That was the original, the first exile initially was in um, seven, around 700 B.C. Give me that next uh, picture up. This is the actual trade routes and, and boundary lines. He, the, the Samaritans, which were actually the northern tribes, the ten tribes, Jerusalem and Benjamin tribe was, they were spared for a few years afterwards. 
Later, they also were exiled. But the ten tribes, these were called the ten lost tribes of Israel. You ever heard of that? Well, they were all scattered all the way up into Assyria, modern-day Iraq and Persia, Iran. They were all the way up in there until, and, and for up until uh, just the last 50 years, modern-day Iraq has had a huge community of Jewish people that are, were still there from the uh, dispersia or the, the original exile back 700 years before Christ. Now, Jeremiah the prophet, he comes in and he says, and this is Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8. Give me that next one up. This is a remarkable statement from Jeremiah. And this is the way God, what God pronounced upon those northern tribes for their unfaithfulness. Jeremiah 3 8. For all of the adulteries of that faithful, faithless one Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. And then, but he didn't just send them away. What the Assyrians would do, and they still do this today, uh, Hitler did this also, is you not only deport the indigenous people, but you export and repopulate that territory with people from other uh, geographical locations that you have conquered. You take them out and put them there, a thousand miles away, and you take those people and put them down here. So what the Assyrian army did is, and, and uh, give me a 2 Kings 17. Here's what the Assyrians did. It says... The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sephar, Vaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. They possessed Samaria. And that's why Jews hated Samaritans. They wasn't really one of them. And they represented the uh, defeat of the Jewish people in the, in back in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and the prophets. Now notice here that they, the groups, how many groups do you see there? The five nations that the Assyrians brought in are listed. And in verse 29 there, it says that and every nation had their own gods. And they put them in the houses of the high places where the Samaritans had made every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. So they all had their gods, and there were five gods. Now get this, because get, this I think is key to understanding this passage in John 4. You had the Samaritans. They had five gods. Here is a Samaritan woman... She's had five husbands, and just as Jacob met Rachel, Rachel was the mother of all of the ten northern tribes. She basically was the mother of those lost tribes, that section of territory. 
And Jesus meets at Jacob's well, almost like a, a embodiment of the idolatrous Samaritan, five husbands, unfaithful to God. And I also jotted this down. You can do what you want to with it. But when Jacob met Rachel in Genesis 29, verse 7, at the well, it says it was high day. When Jesus meets this woman, the, the, the Samaritan, with her idolatrous past or her five husbands, uh, and, and I don't know that she was at fault for all five of them. Maybe she just got five losers in a row. But generally, if you've been through five husbands, maybe you ought to look in the mirror. So, so what Jesus says here is, look, here's this, here's this woman. She's the prototype of the person I'm looking for. And, it, and led by the Holy Spirit, led by the Father, he suddenly realizes, here is every woman that I am looking for to renew covenant who's been away from God, who's found an emptiness in all her idols and is now ready to enter covenant anew with the divine bridegroom, the Messiah. High noon. Jacob's well in Samaria. And John, so brilliant so historically informed, scripturally immersed, led by the Holy Spirit, puts this together for us. And you tell me the Word of God does not ring true. Oh, this, this is just tremendous stuff. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, uh, wrote... In the first century, he says, Now the people moved into Samaria from the, all these other countries, and that is the name by which they were to be called, they were, came to be called, that is, Samaritans, each of them according to their nation, which were in number five, and brought their own gods into Samaria. So that is, that's a picture of uh, Josephus. He sent me that just the other day. No, no, no. Let me back up and get one other theme, one other strand and bring it in here, and that is the, the theme of hope and pursuit and covenant renewal that God promises in the Old Testament. That same prophet Hosea, and this is Hosea 2 and verse 14, which I believe we also have. Hosea 2, 14. God also said after He had Hosea and had the unfaithful uh, wife Gomer, representing unfaithful Israel. She did leave him. When you read Hosea 1 and 2, she, she abandoned him. Just like Israel abandoned her covenant God. But he told Hosea, he said, go get her. Give it a while, but then I want you to pursue her. She was actually in a slave market. You read this in Hosea. She ended up being a slave. Crack at it. I don't know. And he had to buy her out of slavery. So he goes, and here's what Hosea uh, chapter 2, verse 14, where God says, in the same way as you pursued her, I will allure her, that is my bride, that's been divorced or cast off. I will speak tenderly to her. I will court her again, is what he's saying. 
And she will respond as in the days of youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will again call me my husband and not Baal. You will again call me my husband. Isaiah 62 verse 5, the prediction of the prophet was, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God will rejoice over you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. How happy is that? When I first got married, I just, I just wanted to get Jan and get out of town. Just me and her. My little red Volkswagen. I had all my worldly goods were in the back seat. My treasure was in the front seat with me. And they were having some kind of a possum hunt in Hamlin County, Ohio. And it was 2 a.m. and I'm driving. She said, well, why don't we just go back to my house? I'm like, no way. (laughs) Go back to your house? I'll drive till tomorrow. (laughs) Because I was rejoicing over my bride. I just wanted her alone. Just me and her alone. As it turned out, I had to, we had to turn around and go back to her aunt's house. <laughs> Aunt Nellie. Yeah. She was in the room right next to ours, as I remember. But... As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Jeremiah 33, verse 10, put it like this. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is waste, it has not man or beast. That's the the northern tribes. Jeremiah said, in this place of which you say it's now wasted. Even the cities of Judah and streets of Jerusalem are desolate. No man, no inhabitant, no, no animals. There will be heard again the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the bride. And he goes on in Jeremiah 33, same passage, and he says, And he will be called the Lord is our righteousness and sit on the throne of David. The Messiah was that bridegroom that would come to that desolate area that had been depopulated by exile. And so this is why John, when asked if he was the Messiah in John 3, 28, notice this one. John says, I'm not the Messiah. I've been sent ahead of him. The one that has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, you remember what we said in, starting out in John 4? That they were all going over to Jesus. The disciples were baptizing more people, Verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. They were baptizing more now than John. It just seemed like everybody was leaving John and going to Jesus. John said, let me tell you, if you want to know who the Messiah... I'm not the Messiah. Do you, do you want to know who the bridegroom is? Notice how he equates Messiah with bridegroom. 
But he said, do you, know, do you want to know who the, the Messiah is, the bridegroom? Look who's getting the bride. Look who goes to the bride. Look who goes to the, to the groom. Where's the bride? If you, want to, if you come in late in a wedding and you want to know who the bridegroom is, you're, you're there because you know the bride, but you don't know who the bridegroom is. And they're all, already standing up there. Well, who's standing next to the, to the groom? So that's what he says. Who's standing next to the bride? Who's standing next to the groom? The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him, but rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. You see? Because the prediction of the prophet was, when you hear the bridegroom's voice, then you know the exile is over, the desolation has passed, judgment is finished, and now the, joy, the sounds of joy will return to the city. He said, oh, so... I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice because I remember Jeremiah 33 that said, now's the time, it's over. Exile's over. So this, this was John. That's why he says, he must, I must decrease, he must increase. John was the best man at the wedding. And you don't have a best man who increases during a wedding. At least I hope you don't. The best man has to fade. The best man does not say, hey, uh, congratulations to you both. Um, when does the plane for the honeymoon leave? I'll be right there with my bags. No. Dude, you got to fade. <laughs> You're out. John says, that's my role. By the way, that's the pastor's role. Not to increase in your eyes but to decrease to introduce you to the bridegroom and he becomes more and more more glorious more beautiful you look to him for provision you look to him to teach you for the word and I fade away that's my role is to decrease that's the best man so any, that's also true for any lesser men. So this is a literal story when we look at the Samaritan woman. Jesus sees her and knows now why the Father sent him through Samaria. She's the personification, the perfect prototype of his new bride, the church. Who The church is simply a community of people who have had their idols, have been burned out with them. They've had their past that they don't want to bring up. They don't want to discuss it like she was here. They are amazed that Jesus would be interested in them. What dealings do you, Jesus, the Son of God, have with me? Why would you be interested in me? You have, Holy God has no dealings with sinful Larry. See, that's our response to this. But this is, this is a, an unlikely prospect for a bride. And yet, here he is at the well where you meet a bride, where Jacob met Rachel, mother of the ten tribes that were lost, high noon, presenting himself as the Messiah, the divine bridegroom. And by the way, I just want to add this. When it says here 
If you would have knew who you're talking to, I would have given you the living water in verse 10. I would have given you living water or running water. In the, um, in the Jewish tradition and in the Old Testament, you, you took purification baths and you did it in running water, that is in a stream or a river. Uh, it, uh, Ezekiel 47 talks about the running water or living water. The, it's a river that flows out of the throne of God because it symbolizes the Holy Spirit. He said, I would have given you living water. But one of the things that happened that, he, that grew up, and it was true in the first century, is that the Jewish people had these purification baths. And Jews would immerse themselves in these baths. Now, today they still have them. They're called the mikvahs. Give me a picture of that, the mikvah. This is a modern-day Jewish mikvah. This is, I know what you're thinking. This is a little different from our mikvah. <laughs> this is our mikvah. This is the Jewish mikvah. But you have to pay for this one. This can go as high as $250 for one single baptism or immersion. And you have to repeat it. It's not just one time. And you do it naked. I'm just telling you. <laughs> if you convert to Judaism, you have to take a mikvah naked. And there's a person standing there, and you have to do it three times. And there's a person standing there, and as you dip, he will say, kosher, which means you went all the way under and every hair was wet. You come back up, and then you do it again. And he says, kosher, and then you, that means everything went under and you, you did it right. Then you do it a third time, kosher. That is the Jewish mikvah. Now here is the thing that blew my mind, uh, and maybe I was too impressionable on this, but do you know when the Jewish people dip in the mikvah, the living, the, the living water, the running water, the purification ceremonies began for the women on the wedding night before they enter the marital covenant the next day. That's the first Jewish mikvah for women. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Jesus said to this woman, if you'd asked me, I would have given you a true mikvah true purification that is of the inward, the soul, the mind, the spirit, the cleansing that you really are wanting, I would have given you that. That's why Matthew 28 verse 18 to 20 does teach us when he says you, that those that come to Christ, we are to baptize them not in, I-N, the best translation is into. It's not the Greek E-N, it's the Greek E-I-S. Into the name, singular, one name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You were baptized into the name. Which means you took His name. You are now identified with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You have a new identity. You are baptized through that ceremony into a co the covenant union awaits 
This is a nuptial bath in which you are cleansed for the new covenant union that God gives you. I hear like bells in heaven. <laughs> All right. So here's the things I want you to, re- to remember because uh, we've got to finish this up. Here's what I want you to remember. Um, number one, to, if we can get this, this, this helps us to get hold of the great sweep of the Bible, the grand narrative, that it's God in His covenant love losing His people but pursuing them again in the Messiah who will introduce a new covenant with a new community of faith called the church. This is the grand sweep of the Bible. And it's so embodied in embryo form right here with Jesus and this Samaritan woman. This this is what we get here. This is the grand narrative of the Bible. And then, this shows us that there is so much more to uh, Christianity than just forgiveness. I mean, I I don't want to underestimate forgiveness. It's beautiful. It's glorious to be forgiven for our sins. But, But Christianity, oh, that's... Oh, if, you, if you relish your forgiveness, there's so much more than forgiveness. I took my uh, vehicle to Midas because it kept losing power, and so I took it up there. They, they towed it, tried to fix it, wasn't sure, gave it back to me, charged me 100 bucks. Thank you very much. And seemed to do okay. A couple of weeks later... Again, losing power. Took it back. They fixed it and gave it back. Charged me a hundred bucks. I said, you know, I said, are you sure this is it? He said, no, I'm not sure this is it. In fact, I don't know what the problem is. Give me a hundred bucks. <laughs> but again, sure enough, it, it did okay for a week or so. And then once again, lost power. So this time, I just charged it up with Jan's car, and I prayed to God, and God showed me what was wrong with it. It was something, some little silly thing, but uh, I prayed to God. He showed me what was wrong with it. I had a mechanical revelation. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, if God can show me what is wrong with that vehicle, He can show you anything. But I, took, I said, that's it right there. And I drove it back up there and I said, look at that. He said, that's it. I said, I already knew that. <laughs> Give me a hundred bucks. <laughs> no, but, but here's the thing. I, this guy's name I think is Paul, but he's a nice guy. And you know what? I forgave him. He failed me, left me stranded, disappointed me. 
I forgave him. Total forgiveness. But I didn't marry him. <laughs> right? I didn't get in a covenant with him. And I certainly didn't get to be one flesh. Hello. And I didn't become a joint heir with him. And I didn't share any more wealth. I didn't give him my bank account numbers. So he has access. I mean, this Christianity... It's more than forgiveness. It is this huge covenant that God is... Hey, I got good news and bad news. The good news is God has entered a covenant with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will love you with passion for eternity. He's entered that covenant. And when you came up out of the baptismal waters, you were received and your name was pronounced... His name was pronounced on you forever. That's good news. Now here's the bad news. You entered a covenant with Him. And He will love you. He will pursue you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Oh. You mean I'm stuck? You're stuck when you get married? The answer to that is yes. (laughs) Y'all are like, uh... Let me think... All right, here's the third thing I want you to remember here is this shows us the importance of outreach regardless of condition. This woman is not holy. This woman is not seeking God. This woman is so fed up with seeking love in all the wrong places. She's had five husbands. She just, okay, I'm not even going to marry you. Just move in. I'm done. So done with men. And then she meets Jesus. That emptied, desolate, disappointed woman is the one Jesus is ready for. Here's what Isaiah 65 one says. I was ready to be found by those who did not even ask for me. To be found by those who did not seek me, I said to them, Here I am. And to a nation not called by my name. See, she's not even Jewish. She's Samaritan. You're Gentile. You're not even Jewish. You're not called by His name. But in the New Covenant you are. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Into His name. And then finally... This teaches us that there is a true joy and a true love that's the deepest possible, that truly satisfies. I would have given you true living water. I would have showed you what marriage, what covenant, what love, what faithfulness really is, what satisfies. You haven't found it here. I will give it to you. So that, see, Jesus will give you true love so that you do not have to suck your husband or wife dry trying to sap the emotional satisfaction they will never be able to impart to you. But you don't need it. You found it in Jesus. And now you can give it 
You can give it. That way, when my wife is struggling, I don't need to draw from her. I draw from him. And the same with her. Sometimes we can't lean on each other's faith or virtues or love to satisfy our our emotional needs. So we, we lean on Jesus Christ. I was preaching some years ago on heaven. And a man came up to me afterwards and he said, you broke my heart today. And, you know, that gets any pastor's attention. And I said, whoa. I said, how, how did I break your heart? He said, you, you said there's no marriage in heaven. Because his wife had died about a year or so earlier. <clears throat> they were very devoted to each other. And they had no children, so that, they were all each other had. He, so when she died, it just, it just devastated him. And then he came to church, and I said, there's no marriage in heaven. And he said, you broke my heart today. I thought about that since then, and I wish I had known then more how to articulate what I want to tell you. And I'm going to end with this. But marriage is like the scaffolding on a building that's under construction. And when it's finished, this earthly marriage drops away with the full realization of all that marriage was intended to be. And the best of marriages is but a faint picture of the deepest happiness and communion that you can have between God and yourself and others. See, don't eroticize the Samaritan woman. There's nothing about that in it. It's, this is about Jesus in an infinite capacity being the source and fountain of an infinite pleasure so that when you depart this life, you will not need the outward structure. You will enjoy intensely and blissfully, infinitely, eternally, everything that your heart longs for marriage to be, but you never could quite get there. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Right now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know as I am known. Tertullian wrote, the early church father, we will not only recognize ourselves in heaven, but our spouses as as well. We will be united to them, he says. Closer than ever, will God separate in heaven that those people for whom He forbids such separation here in this earthly life? Rather, we will be bound to them all the more. I wish I had said that to that dear brother. In that, that way, we will never have to grieve unduly the loss of our life's partner. So Jesus is at the well. He's waiting. You may have stumbled upon Him this morning. Maybe you stumbled upon Him. And it's like, I didn't know. I was just wanting to get some water. 
I was found of them that did not seek for me. While the band comes to sing us one more song, let's pray together and let's ask God's Holy Spirit to bind our hearts to Him and each other. Heavenly Father, as we close today with praise, we ask that You would evermore give us this living water, this inward purification that enables us to be to enjoy the fullness of our covenant union with the living God. Father, bless, purify, and and put fire, the fire of your love in our hearts. Not only love from you, but for you and for each other. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.